It's time for the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent ETA, Agent Ether, Agent Kruger, and Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check us out on Discord where you can interact with the hosts and uh, other great stuff. (laughs) This week's episode, Power Hour. Number three? I don't know. I'd have to check the... I think we've done two before. I'm not 100% sure about that, so I'll have to check the thing. Yeah, sounds about right. I gotta come up with a better Discord pitch. (laughs) Come check us out on Discord. But anybody unfamiliar with Discord, it's basically a chat room designed for gamers, but we're all on there, so you can come and interact with us and say hello or talk about conspiracies or whatever. It's a pretty cool platform. I'm a member of uh, several servers on there that are just... A good fun time. Like, for example, the Black Vault has one where John Greenwald will come in and pop in and talk about stuff on occasion. So a lot of cool stuff going on on Discord. Yeah, my youngest is really excited because he just friended me on Discord. So now we can chat while I'm at work. All right. So this week, Power Hour, we each decided to bring our own topic. And let's get started with uh, Agent ETA. What do you got for us? Well, I got a couple different topics, and um, they're mostly like out-of-place artifacts and or um, archaeology. So I, I know that some of these ones I'm pretty sure we've mentioned, but um, I'm not sure if we've done, I don't think we've done like a full episode or anything like that or a full segment on it. So uh, the first one I wanted to talk about, uh, I just had like like three of them, um, is the Great Wall of Texas. Have we talked about this on the podcast? No, I haven't even heard of this one. No, it's... So uh, basically what it is, is like walls that were dug up in Texas. And, and um, there's a, at least around 11 locations where this has uh, been, been actually documented, but it's uh, around Rockwall County in Texas. And um, around like 1852 is when people started finding these things. And uh, they're very interesting, like, well, they could be formations or they could be very ancient walls because of the depth uh, in which they were found. And um, there have been studies actually done on it, and uh, the the actually the uh, some geologists from the University of Texas and in, in, uh, at Dallas was uh, some of the first ones to do some some investigations on, it. and they basically came to the conclusion that it was a natural formation of a segmented uh, stone. So they didn't think it was man made or anything like that. But there have been other people that have gone back there and done their own investigations. Uh, for example, in nineteen twenty five. An archaeologist named uh, Byron D. Prorock. I think I'm, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. I kind of doubt it. But, <laughs> well, that's a poor name. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> well, but, you know, uh, so he, he did a study of, of his own, and he concluded that it was man-made. Uh, that's what he uh, thought. And he said it, he thought that it was constructed by a, a prehistoric race. Um, now, like some people that have gone down there uh, and came to this conclusion, they claim that they have found like like uh, structures like uh, in the stone, like like terraces, windows. Uh, one person even um, claimed to have found like a like a uh, an open like a uh, chamber that was you know they found like a tunnel you know into a chamber, and it seemed to be man made. But it's a uh, some of these stories are aren't really 
that well accounted, if I could say that, I guess, you know what I mean? It's, it's not really too solid, but there, there have been, like I said, other people, like, uh, for example, in 1996, um, a uh, architect named John Lindsay went down there and did his own study as well. And he said that the, that he also believed that it was evidence of, of pre- prehistoric structures being built by man. And, uh, let me see the, the actual quote that I had from him was evidence of a prehistoric structure built by man is mounting. Um, so obviously he was a believer in the, it being made by man, but it's i I've seen some of the pictures of it and stuff and it's very interesting. Some of them definitely to me look like they absolutely could be just a natural stone formation. Um, but then there are other ones and I haven't seen, I didn't come across any pictures of like, you know, uh, windows or anything like that. So I'm, I'm thinking some of that stuff might've been just, hyped up a little bit, you know what I mean? People let their imaginations possibly get away with them, or they just didn't take pictures. Who knows, right? <laughs> but but uh, I, I think it's an interesting little little uh, place, and, you know, I, I would like to visit it one day and see some of this stuff for myself, you know, especially being in the, in the continental United States, you know. I, I could get there without uh, flying if I didn't want to, but probably just fly, to be honest. I've taken a couple, like, virtual tours, like on on YouTube, you know, if you go, some people who've like visited these places will record their experiences and it's not like great quality or anything, but at least you're, you know, there in a sense and you can kind of get a look around. That would be pretty freaking sweet. Yeah. I've, I think I've, I've seen some of those, uh, um, on, on a PlayStation. I used to have a, well, I still have it, I guess, but I don't really use it too much, but they had those like virtual tours of like, you know, famous areas of spots around the world and stuff. And oh, some of them were pretty are cool. Fun I mean, too. Oh yeah. yeah. I forgot about that. That's a pretty cool feature. Yeah. I bet you could do that for like Machu Picchu or something. I would think you're probably right. So, okay. The second uh, thing I wanted to talk about was uh, the iron pilly of <laughs> pilly. What the hell? <laughs> the iron pillar of uh, Delhi or is it Delhi? It's in India. It's a very uh, impressive pillar. So, anyways, um, it's an iron pillar that has stood for over 1,600 years. And uh, the very impressive thing about it is how um, resistant it is to corrosion and stuff. So, um, the, uh, the pillar has, has uh, very little corrosion on it. It has like an oxid- uh, oxidization layer around it, but it, like, you know, it, it oxidized just you know, a little bit, had a nice uniform layer, then it stopped. It hasn't... Uh, corroded any more than that like uh, it has a bunch of inscriptions around it and stuff not all of them have been um translated or studied and it's kind of funny to me that that would be the case because it's in a very accessible area and like you know it's it's there's a lot of uh a lot of people that are around that area it's it you know you could easily do uh you know studies of those trans uh those uh, those uh, inscriptions but at any rate um, I find it very impressive. It's not like a super ancient artifact, nothing like that. You know what I mean? But uh, 1,600 years old is is what it's uh, theorized to to be. I mean, who knows if that's really true? Well, that, I mean, it's, it seems to be uh, the case. But I mean, could it be older? Maybe. Maybe. Who knows? You know? But they can't carbon date it or anything. Well, they've they've done like an analysis of the uh, the pillar itself, and um, they 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 feel they know why it actually. Uh, is resistant uh, toward, towards corrosion and stuff. And uh, it's because it has uh, some sort of a, uh, like a crystalline, it's like a crystalline iron. Um, I, I, shit. I mean, agent ether would be able to describe this shit better than I would. <laughs> but, Probably yeah, like a, a frequency of vibration. There's nothing well, can stick to it. It's, it's a, 
it's a very special mix of metals and uh, it speaks very highly towards the ability of, of the time in which it was made, which it was, you know, during that time, you know, most historians would, would tell you that they probably wouldn't, you know, they would be very surprised at, uh, that they were capable of that. You know what I mean? Do you ever wonder if this stuff was like serendipitous though? Like they accidentally somehow were creating this structure and then it just lasted a really long time. Like they didn't uh, actually have the technology. No, I, I don't really think so. It just would yeah. be funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we totally did that on purpose. What are you talking about? That's why, like, that's go, why go. there's only one pillar. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> uh, maybe. I hope not. No, no. I don't think so. Not really. So, uh, yeah, but um, let me see. What was the next thing I, I wanted to talk about here? Okay, so this is more of like a uh, like a archaeolo- archaeological thing. And um, it's it's a, uh, about a, a city that was found off the west coast of India that um, is supposed to be around ninety five hundred years old, and it's a you know it's it's a it's, it's called a was it, let me see if I can pronounce this Dwarka Dwarka <laughs> something like Dwarka anyways. Why well, watch your language, no, sir? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, I find this I, I find this extremely uh, interesting because. I mean, a city that uh, is this complex, the city uh, has, you know, a city structure, a city grid, you know, streets and everything, um, a lot of advanced uh, stonework uh, buildings all around it. Um, it's, it's uh, I mean, it's not, it's also like, it's not a small area either. It's about five miles long by two miles wide. And so the, the area before, before it had been like, uh, you know, discovered by, um, um, Anybody that was serious about it, like uh, investigating it and seeing if seeing it as an archaeological dig, a lot of the fishermen and stuff in the area already knew about it long before because they would get their, like you know their nets caught on it and stuff like that. You know, so the site's been known about for quite some time. But it, um, I think it was in 2016 when they actually started like uh, doing some uh, investigations there, and they brought up all sorts of. And by the way, this this uh, this structure these structures are um, about 120 feet deep underwater. In the uh, the Gulf of Cambay, so I mean it's not it's not like it's just right off right offshore, you know. What I mean it was not like it's like right under under the water, you know. It's still still you know it's real, real, you know reasonably deep, and um so they they have brought up like uh, pottery, they've brought up you know statues and stuff, and even like um, parts of the, like the sections of the wall to investigate like the stones and stuff that they were using, and um, they brought up like human human remains, including teeth. And uh, they've car- they carbon dated um, what they could, and they they have settled on the you know the, this spot is ninety five hundred years old, and that's that's pretty impressive. It's not as old as somewhere like uh, Gobekli Tepe, but like you know it's it's still it's right there. You know it's a uh, you know those temple structures and like I said a full city grid, so it ain't no you know little little thing. You know it's it's a impressive. Uh, amount of building there and it's underwater and then you know we'll give it some so time that, maybe that, uh, maybe it won't continue to be underwater they're finding like all kinds of that's po- well they're well, well they're finding all kinds of things i guess especially because of the drought over here like i just saw in the news they found like dinosaur footprints at the bottom of some you know river that's that, that's gone really? dry it's pretty cool yeah i mean some Sometimes unfortunate events like that can reveal, you know, some some impressive stuff. Like, for example, like in the rainforest in uh, Brazil and in, in South America, a lot of the clear cutting in, in that area has revealed a lot of evidence for a very massive society that lived there at one point, which 
previously wasn't thought to have been possible. You know, that's amazing. I love that. Yeah, but I, mean, I don't well, like clear cutting, right? When yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, but I love it that when we can find something on accident like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I, I love these kind of sites, these uh, these archaeological sites, because it pushes back the date, you know, of like accepted, uh, you know, human history, advanced uh, civilizations building, advanced structures and cities, you know, and and uh, it's it's yeah, it's it's another one of those things. And I've said this before, like when when I see like uh, pictures of these sites or. I'll sit down and daydream a little bit, you know, uh, about like who the hell built this and like what the what 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 were they like when this was like a thriving you know city or something, you know? Oh, it, I would love that. I mean, it, I, it I drives don't know your imagination oh. wild, you know. Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with like the video game, you know, Assassin's Creed, but how they can take an ancestor if you have a bloodline or in your DNA, mm -hmm. they can look back into the past and then you could see through the eyes of your ancestors. I wish that was something that was actually in real life because, yeah, right, same yeah. here. Is that I would <laughs> yeah. love to be able to take a look into the past and just to see how accurate our assumptions are of the past and how we mm -hmm. think the way of life was. And then, you know, uh, it would be awesome. I and don't know. My family was farmers. Like, as far back as those genealogy tables go, it's like, your relatives were farmers <laughs> and more farmers. And before that... They were farmers okay, well, <laughs> all the way back to the Middle Ages. They were farmers. Congratulations. But they still saw people that they were jealous of. They were like, you know, envious of their status. So I don't know. I would still like to see it. You know, it'd be awesome just to see their way of life, even if they were farmers. It would just be fascinating. But yeah, I know. My, I, yeah, I'm right there with you. Don't worry. Farmers go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's, uh, I mean, that's pretty much what I had. All right. Who's up next? You want to go next, Agent uh, Agent Kruger? Hey, why not? Why not? All right, okay. let's do it. Uh, sorry for the. Uh, let's do it. Well, I was uh kind of to springboard off of the ancient civilization thing and all that. Um, I went and looking into, you know, the hypothesis of ancient astronauts, and not so much their influence on our religions, but how our religions kind of speak of their could be of you know extraterrestrials in the past and everything so um but i mean referring to the pseudo-scientific hypothesis that holds intelligent extraterrestrial beings have visited us in the past and that they made contact with our ancient humans and you know that would suggest that their contact influenced a lot of the development of our cultures and you know our technologies and religions and human biology so it's just it's fascinating one just to read up some of this even though a lot of this stuff you can watch on you know ancient aliens there's a few episodes on it and you know there's a lot of the scientific community likes to say this isn't true and that's just complete false and like a lot of the books that were written about it are kind of just you know, just half-assed theorized theories just to grab money. But I don't know. Like, I feel like sometimes there's there's not truth to it, but, you know, maybe there is. I don't know. You know we'll never know until we're up in the sky and we get all the answers in the end, right? But, uh, you know, some uh, just to kind of springboard all over the place. There was one civilization that I always keep, it kept popping up, was the Mayan uh like civilization where one of their kings, Pakal the Great, are you guys familiar with him at all? 
I've heard the name before, sure. Pakal, the Great. This guy, though, he lived a long time, like a very long time. His rule spanned over seven decades. I mean, back in the day, that's, I mean, with all the health and different, you know, bugs going on around the, the that at that time, you know, you could die from a single scratch. You know what I mean? Something that wasn't serious today could really put you in a bad place back in the day. But uh, I'll try to link the picture of his sarcophagus, but the lid of his sarcophagus has a lot of uh, just, it's one peculiar, um, it's just to say the least, it's one peculiar sarcophagus lid. It depicts is, him. Is it, like, uh, is it like really intricately carved or something? I don't think very I've seen intricate. Yeah, no, the carving in itself is, it's intricate. Yeah, all that Mayan. Uh, temples and all their art and everything. It just is beautifully done. And it's mm-hmm. just, you know, it's fascinating to look at. But his stands out from the rest because it almost looks like he is piloting a ship. And a lot of people oh. say he's the ancient rocket man. So like rock I'll man. try to link I'll try to link the picture in our discussion topic right now. But it almost looks like he's operating a vehicle which looks like a spaceship. Um just give me a sec. Sorry to trying to do this on the fly. I should have had it set up earlier. But, I mean, not just the Mayan civilization, but you have Japanese culture where they have depicted, you know, the Dogu, I believe it was called. I hope I'm saying it correctly. But it almost looks like a, a man, an astronaut, like this fat little chubby guy with like a helmet. And it it's hmm. fascinating stuff. But then you have... Uh, Ancient astronaut hypothesis uh, suggests that um, our existence and our some of our ancient civilization like ancestors are actually created for one thing and was to be a slave. And, and mm-hmm. not just for you know the kings at that time, but for these ancient aliens who came from distant planets to farm our natural resources of gold like sulfur and just a bunch of other stuff. So the Anunnaki, the Anunnaki. Yeah. 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 You're talking about and Sumerian from Nibiru, right? right? Sumerian legends. There's Sumerian. Yeah. There's that. And then also there's, I, I'm going to butcher it cause I'm just terrible with their, their, uh, with the Indian like names and stuff like that. But, uh, in the apologies and the Ram Ramayana, Ramayana and the Hindu mythology and the gods and their avatars, they traveled from place to place in flying vehicles called the Vimana. Are you, does that sound accurate? Vimana? Yeah, yeah. Vimana? And uh, there are many mentions of the, their flying objects in the Ramana. Oh God, I'm terrible at it. The Ramana, Ramania? Well, yeah, Ramania? Within, within their, uh, their religious stories, they have stories of, you know, the gods battling in, in craft, like flying oh, craft. Oh, so many, yeah. Yeah, and then just from book six, though, in particular, the magic car, I'm going to quote a little bit here. It's uh, it's not the wondrous chariot, um, but it's named the Pushpak, Pushpak, uh, route by hands divine. This chariot kept with the utmost care will waft thee through the fields of air, and thou shalt light unwearied down. I'm I'm sorry if I'm butchering this. It's just how it's written. In fair, Adiwahaya. <laughs> what? I'm so ter- it's so bad. I don't. That's why I was like, oh my god, I'm gonna butcher it. 
No, um, I, I wouldn't be doing any better. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, no. And then, uh, but it's just, you know, these civilizations, they have recordings in their, you know, on these artifacts that we've recovered that depict some sort of astral being or somebody coming from the sky. And there's a lot of civilizations that have stories of a serpent or some sort of God-like entity coming down from the sky and teaching them wisdom or just the how to improve their world around them and their environment. And going back to the the King Pakal, he set up reservoirs and an irrigation system that really propelled their farming system and just, you know, how they could just get water and move it across the city. And it it's just it's fascinating when you read this stuff, man. It's really cool. And whether like, you know, it's all wrong, but even the Nazca lines, you know, like we we touched it briefly. We've we've done an episode on the Nazca lines, but you know, they people have proven that, you know, it's, you know, they used detailed planning and how to map out the actual like what they want to draw and stuff like that. But, it, you know, the question still remains, why so large and why in such a way where you can only see it if you're up from the air? Isn't that just weird? Just odd. <laughs> then there's the so-called hel- the helicopter hieroglyphs in Egypt, you know, that depict flying, you know, objects or flying vehicles in the air. And you have, uh, you know, just a bunch of other stuff. Again, the, the thing that I... I can't find it in my notes and I'm like scrolling through it like crazy, but it's the, ah, uh, it's just about the vehicles in the Rama being welcomed upon his return and stuff like that from his flying chariot. And it's just a lot of people or a lot of these theorists say that our religions actually are just depicting visitations from ancient aliens and I, I'm not super religious, but I'm not a Scientologist, you know, so I'm not, it's, I'm really down in the middle of everything. And I'm like, until I see it, then I believe it kind of thing, but I still believe in a higher power. And I've been over this with you guys before, but you know, whether you guys believe it or not, it's up to you. But, you know, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that we've had visitations from a more advanced civilization that's come to use us as mules and then they wipe the slate clean and then we actually survived somehow like a cockroach and we just kept expanding and kept living and kept going in a way um yeah and, and it kind of plays in with the out of place artifacts kind of you know with what you were saying eta but you know it just it's just fascinating to me i i think it's it's really cool <laughs> Just like it, it can be about. Um, let's see here. I'll give you another, another one. Here, there's also an ancient with the Irish scripts. There's been a, you know, a battle and Irish invasions, and even when it comes to the book of uh, Ezekiel, or even Genesis, or in the Bible itself, even the Ark of the Covenant can be can you know be looked upon as you know somebody telling us you know, how to build something and, you know, how to do it right. Because how in the hell are you just going to wake up one day and just make something of that size, you know? 
George Washington, even. I mean, whether, again, whether it's true or not, like, it's up to debate as everything is. But, you know, how, how he was visited by two little green men who gave him basically the strategy to defeat the British with such a, a low, like, low, with not that much to play with. You know what I mean? He His morale was at an all-time low. They were outnumbered considerably, and it just, you know, it, all hope seemed lost, but then it wasn't until he wandered off into the forest and came back with a, a foolproof, bulletproof strategy, that's when the tide changed, right? The war really changed for the better for us. But, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> then, but, I mean, I, I think with, uh, I don't know, it, it would be... Like, I'm not sure how the hell we would even prove that to be true. Not just the George Washington, but even us being, you know, basically engineered to be slaves. I I would get behind that. You know what I mean? But the evidence that argues that, you know, we were deemed, what's it called? Oh, man, I'm doing a terrible job. A lot of people like to put that the ancient astronaut theory was actually just basically appeared when we started writing our science fiction, you know, most popular would be HP Lovecraft, right? The idea that was proposed that, that in 1954, when he wrote his, when he started writing his books and it, it definitely got considerable like attention from the hypothesis crews and all the people that, you know, would just eat up and gobble any sort of any kind of content that was written back in that day. Um, but, you know, critics for that emerged later on, though, for that stuff. So it took a moment for people to, like, actually give it a second thought and be like, hey, you know what? Kind of sounds accurate, but, you know, maybe he's just full of crap. But, um, but yeah, it's just uh, now I'm starting to slowly do it. I'm just going to start cursing. So you put that seed in my head. Dang it, Ether. <laughs> But yeah, all right. Well, I'm actually you might end it right there though. I mean, uh, there's there's a whole lot of other things that you can look into. I mean, there's books you can read. There's um just like to name one popular book it was The Chariots of the Gods and that regard that regards the Nazca lines and a lot of other scientific art or artifacts that have been depicted as a you know a being being you know being transported on a spaceship basically and then coming to earth and you know engineering us to be slaves uh, to whatever their uh the anunnaki needed us to do because there was only like 50 of them to be able to get the work done and i know if i'm an advanced civilization i sure as hell i'm gonna like make somebody do the hard work and the heavy lifting right like but not in a bad way, not against they will, because like we bred them and they don't know any better, right? They're just sheep. <laughs> All right, well, let's switch on over to Asian Ether. What do you got for us? Well, boys, so we were talking a little bit about YouTube and you can watch so many UFO, alien and sci-fi movies from the 1950s, like the full movie uh, on YouTube. So I thought that was that was really cool. So I sat down and I watched a couple of them. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about film in the 1950s because that's really when interest in UFO films peaked was during that time. 
And that was actually after the golden age of film, which was from 1930 to 1945. And between that time, there were huge profits and big stars, and there were new kinds of movies with Technicolor, and there were only eight large studios that held 90% of the market. And instead of competing against one another, they collaborated together to fix prices, to fix income for their stars so that there was, you know, no competition at all. And they had uh, censorship. There was the PCA, or Production Code Association, and they monitored basically for content, just like, what is it, the FCC? Is that who monitors for yeah, the FCC, FCC does. So kind of, kind of like that, but you know, probably a lot more strict than they are nowadays. Like no sexual conduct, nothing political. Um, they were pretty politically neutral until after the war. But even even during and after the war, ninety five percent of films were not about the war effort. And then in the nineteen fifties, you had. Uh, the U.S. versus Paramount, the 1948 antitrust lawsuit that broke up those studios. And Agent Anderson likes to talk about that sometimes because he feels it was a very poor decision, right? Well, I don't know about that, but it's a strange case where breaking up a monopoly in some ways actually hurt consumers. This is why... When you go to the movie theater, why you got to pay so much, you got to pay like a hundred bucks for a little thing of popcorn because the movie theaters don't actually make any money or very, very little money from ticket sales. So they got to pay for those big giant theaters by selling you popcorn. Concessions, right? Yeah, that's where they make all their money. The, The movie studios keep most of the money from the tickets. I mean, the theater might get like 3% or something if they're lucky. And if it's a, a really big, you know, big release, then they would, they'll get like 0% for like the first two weeks or something. I mean, the deals are different for every movie, but in general, they get very little. So in the 1930s, Hollywood made hundreds of movies every year, but by 1954, it had dropped to less than a hundred movies. And another reason for that was the introduction of the television set in the home in the early 1950s. So instead of making this big to-do and going out to theater and dressing up and seeing your double feature, uh, people were staying home. And so in order to entice them back into the theater, they had more drama, they went bigger, there was less censorship, there was less feel-good and like musical-type films, and they had more dark themes like Hitchcock. TV dinners. TV dinners. And so instead of having these indoor theaters, they started to develop uh, drive-ins. So this is when drive-ins were really big, and you would park your car outside, and there'd be a projector, and they'd broadcast the sound either on your radio or on loudspeakers. And at one point, there were 4,000 drive-ins across the country. I love drive-ins myself. Unfortunately, by the way, just a public service announcement, there are still drive-ins out there. They're pretty rare, but there are still some out there. And if you live near one, you should definitely support it because they don't make a lot of money. It's more of like a nostalgia thing, you know, given how much land it requires and how how very little money they make from concessions. Because remember, they're not making money on the tickets. They're making it all on the concessions. 
So if you live near one, why don't you go ahead and support them? Go in there and do some tailgating, but also why don't you pop in and grab some popcorn too to help keep the doors open on the place. I just remember when we were younger, hiding people in the trunk so we didn't have to pay the admission price because sometimes <laughs> it was per person instead of per car. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's typically per person, yeah. Yeah. Those made a, a comeback briefly when COVID. Yeah, was, I feel uh, like there was swing. a surge at some point, and they would play these double features, but they weren't new movies, right? They were older movies. I think there was a few that were new because there was one in LA that showed like, oh, I forget the movie that it was, but they they definitely showed a new movie that was you know of you know brand new. It was it was cool though, and then they also had the drive in like horror stories or the horror scare like thing, but that's something completely different. But so they had these huge curve screens and they introduced things like a cinemascope and surround sound, not specifically at drive-ins, but they also had these multiplexes. So instead of being a super glamorous thing to do, they started popping up these little theaters in, in shopping centers and malls um, and I remember even when in the 90s, when I was like a teenager, you would go to one of the shopping complexes and there would be like a carousel and a bench and things to do. And there might be a movie theater. And well, at least where I live now in California, that's kind of a thing in the past. It's just, you know, consumerism and bye, bye, bye. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. That actually scared me. <laughs> 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 Stop it, Krypton. <laughs> How dare you spook me? Oh, man. It used to be like 50 cents to go to the movies. And it would be like a double feature. 50 cents. Wow. Oh, the good old days. Good old days. And then they would have this super long intermission and you would go get your inexpensive concessions and then you'd go back and watch your second movie. Let's all go to the lobby. (laughs) (laughs) That... Was a banger. Always will be a banger. I love that song. <laughs> it is timeless. Well, so back in the 1950s, there were, you know, there's a lot of different movies, a lot of different genres, but UFO and sci-fi movies were pretty popular. They went from just a handful, like in the early 1950s, to like two dozen by the end of the decade. So they became more popular over that over that decade. And uh, they were B-rated for the most part, kind of, you know, low budget. The big theaters didn't want to touch them, which is funny because, again, they were they were pretty popular. They did make some money. Uh, one of my favorites is The Invasion of the Body Snatchers and not the 1978 remake. Or the, uh, who knows, 90s remake. Oh, they've, God, is there another remake? They've remade that one a couple times. Yeah. Not the remakes. The OG black and white shot in 20 days on that extremely low budget movie. That was a good movie. It really was. And the funny thing was it was poorly received by critics. They didn't like it. And it made money. I think the budget was like 350,000 and it made millions including like over in the UK. So, I mean for a small film it made okay money, not for like compared to you know Hollywood films or anything. But uh I don't know. The screenplay was adapted from a book by Jack Finley, Finney, and it was actually shot in Mill Valley near San Francisco, and that's where the book takes place. So they shot the film on location. Nice. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. So 
basically patients are being sent to the psychiatric ward and they're complaining that the people that they know are being replaced by these imposters, these emotionless imposters. And the story progresses and the characters see themselves emerging from these big giant pods and more pods being carted around town. And basically at the end of the film, without giving too much away, uh, Earth loses. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it it starts with the flashback and it kind of ends with this, uh, what is it, prologue. And you kind of, you don't, You don't walk away with a warm, fuzzy feeling. Um, But the book ends differently. I guess in the novel, the extraterrestrials have a lifespan of only five years, and they realize the humans are offering super strong resistance despite having, you know, literally no chance against an alien invasion, but the aliens, like, give up. And they and they leave. So that's the that's the novel. But they kind of a, adapted a more serious, dark undertone for the movie, and that was kind of typical of of you know the 1950s, kind of going towards these darker themes. It's not really a UFO movie. It's definitely an alien movie. But I was thinking I wanted to look at a a UFO movie, so I went ahead and watched Plan 9 from Outer Space. Oh, boy. (laughs) By Ed Wood, often called the worst director of all times. (laughs) He's not. No, he wrote these cult classics. I know, he's popular. He was bad, but there are worse. (laughs) He was also a writer, and he wrote these crime and sex novels, and I would like to just name a few. A few that he wrote. A Study of Fetishes and Fantasies, Tales for a Sexy Night, Part 1 and 2, Death of a Transvestite Hooker, Forced Entry, TV Lust. (laughs) I'm trying not to laugh over here. (laughs) These pornographic books, essentially, in, in his later years of life, would kind of get him through, through his days. So that's how he would go on to make his money after film. That's hilarious. It's good stuff. (laughs) Yeah, his just an example. Like his his movies were shot. He usually only did like one take per scene, right? So if whatever the take was, that's what they put in there. Like you can see takes where actors will bump the set and like the whole set shakes, or you know maybe they mess up their lines a little bit, or maybe you can see like you know, the microphone in the background, like they're really bad, like really, really bad. But plan nine from outer space. I've seen a couple of his movies and that one's plan nine is actually not a bad movie. It's, it's, it's called one of his best movies. I think. Yeah. It's actually an entertaining movie. It's not horrible. Well, I was entertained on several levels. Maybe not entertaining in the right way. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it starts off and there's these pilots and they're looking out their window and there's this UFO and it almost looks like aluminum, you know, like a tinfoil it's, on a string and it's like bouncing around. We're not talking about an air, airplane cockpit like what you might see in the movie. No, it's kind airplane. of just like a curtain in it's, the back <laughs> and two guys sitting in two chairs. It looks it looks like a set from the Muppets or something. Like it's, <laughs> It does not look like a real airplane at all. Uh, So in this movie, uh, residents are under attack by flying saucers. Specifically, the aliens intend to come in 
and resurrect corpses in a Hollywood cemetery. And the corpses are supposed, the living dead are supposed to help them take over the world. So you have this cape-wearing ghoul, a vampire. Uh, There's a cop, and he was getting kind of nosy, so they killed him off, and then I think he comes back too. And they just stalk humans who are wandering the cemetery because they're looking for evidence of UFOs. Yeah, and it's a really fun movie. It's a great Halloween movie, particularly if, you know, you got some younger people in the audience. Um, I mean, there is violence, but it's sort of, it's it's almost G-rated. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's it's really not that graphic of a movie. Is this the one where they had like severed hands? And I think it might have been. Yeah, but it, the way they do it, it at least for me anyways, by my standards, the way they did it was not like really all that scary or gruesome. No. It was more campy. You know, like, I don't think this movie is ever going to scare anybody. So we, that was, I don't want to say a serious movie, but serious in its own right. There were also comedies. So there were movies that were written to be funny about aliens and UFOs. And one of these was Invasion of the Saucer Men. <laughs> and it was a double feature with I Was a Teenage Wolf. And basically, a flying saucer lands in the woods, and there's this teenage couple. Of course, they're up in Lover's Lane. Uh, and they accidentally run down one of the occupants of the saucer. They run down one of the aliens as they're, as they're driving back. I think they're, they're drunk. So... <laughs> Someone else, a different character, stumbles across the the corpse and he knows it's an alien. So he wants to keep the body so that he can somehow become rich from it. So he shoves it in a refrigerator and he tries to convince his his friends that it's an, an alien, but no one, of course, is believing him. Other aliens start to show up. They're looking for their friend. Uh there's something like they they put their retractable needle fingerprints into people to make them drunk <laughs> and intoxicated, <laughs> and they can kill people from alcohol poisoning. All right. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is the one with the severed hands, because then they're going around, and the kids, the teenager gets get charged for, like, vehicular manslaughter for the friend who was killed by the aliens. So the friend has been intoxicated by the aliens, he's been killed, and now his friends who ran down the alien are getting convicted for his murder. And the movie ends when, uh, not the military, but other teenagers discover the aliens cannot stand the glare from a car's bright headlights. So that they're able to scare Like I said, it's a comedy. So that was a comedy, and you also have the more serious films. And I want to talk about one specifically, Unidentified Flying Objects, The Truth About UFOs, or simply known as the UFO film from 1956. And it was actually a documentary-style you know, type of film. I guess there was this Hollywood producer, Clarence Green, and he thinks he saw a UFO in 1952. So he reported it to the Air Force, to Albert M. Chop, who was kind of in charge of PR, so that's who people went to when they wanted to report a sighting in that area. And so the whole movie is, is done in like a narration style. The film begins with a statement 
It says, many times in the history of our civilization, the introduction of a new thought has brought skepticism, even ridicule. Despite this, there has always remained the duty and inalienable right to tell the people the truth. The motion picture you are about to see is true. It is not fiction. Much of the information in it has never been told. You will see it here for the first time. So that's not even a disclaimer. That's just just like an announcement. (laughs) Like, here we go. So... It starts in 1947, and it recreates the Kenneth Arnold sighting. And then it will recreate the Mantell UFO incident. It looks at the Gorman dogfight, and it traces the development of UFOs as, like, how is it a fad? How has it become, you know, popular in culture? How has it become serious? Is it a threat to our country? They go into uh, Project Sign But mostly it focuses on Albert Chop, the assigned PR officer. Uh, And at first, so in the film, he appears to be skeptical. So he starts off in the film as being a skeptic. And then as the film progresses, he becomes a believer. Now, I don't know how much of that is during the film so chop is initially portrayed as this like debunker this skeptic and as the film progresses he gradually will will change his views and i don't know how much of that actually happened during the film versus maybe initially when it was reported or when he was working in that position he was a skeptic and then over time with all the reports and his personal relationship with this hollywood person he became more um, open, or <laughs> if he doesn't believe at all, and he's just saying he does. Like, who knows? Who knows what what the story is behind that? So the uh, documentary concludes with the 1952 Washington D.C. UFO incident. I guess Albert Chop played a central role, so they recreate his experience during the incident, and at the end of the film. Chop states that uh, UFOs are real, a physical phenomena of unknown origin. Hmm. That's really interesting because Al Chop was actually a part of Project Blue Book. I don't know that much about him, and I don't know really where he stood one way or the other. He is mentioned in uh, in um, the, the book, uh, the report on UFOs or unidentified flying objects by Ruppelt, and he is mentioned in the files, of course, but I'm not sure what his actual stance was. But the fact that he worked for the military and then at some point he came out in a movie, was it actually him or an actor playing him? No, it was him. It was actually it him. Was, it was him. It was a documentary type style. That's movie. really weird. Yeah. That is really weird. That's my understanding anyways. He it's, just plays himself. It's rare for a military person to come out in a movie and and make a statement like that. It's Usually, not a movie. It's a documentary. Right. Well, you know, whichever. <laughs> that's really now I kind of want to see that that sounds that's really interesting so I guess it analyzes two pieces of UFO footage the Mariana UFO incident of 1950 and the 1952 UFO film taken near the Great Salt Lake in Utah by a US Navy photographer so it takes a look at uh, both those as well and analyzes them and gets commentary and that sort of thing oh that's cool yeah 
both famous cases that I'm sure we'll get to sooner or later. So I didn't watch that whole thing. I kind of ran out of time towards the end, but I plan to go back and watch it from the beginning because I was like, first of all, it's pretty well done for the time. You know, I watched the first, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes and I wanted to watch the rest. It wasn't like, you know, I put it on. I was like, okay, I'll watch this for the show. I was like, this is this is actually pretty good. I'm going to go back and I'm going to watch this. So, So there you have it interesting movie it's it's hard to make an interesting documentary <laughs> there's an awful lot of boring ones out there all right was that your topic agent ether that was my topic all right i guess i'm up last and i am talking about today gary mckinnon the uh the famous scottish or infamous or whatever so gary uh, gary mckinnon was a scottish systems admin who was accused of committing the largest security breach ever in the history of the United States at the time. He basically hacked the crap out of, um, now it said on Wikipedia and some other places, some other sources, it says that he hacked 97 computers. But uh, when you listen to his interviews, I think the number may be significantly higher than that, but that's what they're claiming is 97 And so he hacked these computers, supposedly, over 13 months from February 2001 to March 2002. And he committed these hacks from his girlfriend's aunt's house in London. So I guess he didn't even uh, do it from his own house. Maybe that was to try to hide his tracks. He went under the hacker name Solo, which I pretty much have to assume was a reference to Han Solo you know, from Star Wars, maybe? I don't know. That's what I assume. So according to the government, during these hacks, he deleted critical system files that shut down the U.S. Army's military district of Washington network for 24 hours. And this was a network of about 2,000 computers. So they're claiming that he, you know, caused significant disruption and damage to the military. Uh, And they said that also after the 9-11 hacks, He deleted weapon logs at the Earl Naval Weapons Station, stopping munitions deliveries for the Atlantic Fleet. And this, it's sort of, I don't know, I'm a little skeptical of these claims. Maybe we'll talk about that. Uh, I'll probably hit hit on that a little bit later. But um, just imagine one dude in his girlfriend's aunt's house with a a laptop is able to disrupt the entire Atlantic Fleet. (laughs) I don't know. Come on. For fun, do you talk about his motivation? Come like, on. Do you, do you talk about why he wants to do this? No, we'll get to that though. So he would leave notes on the computers that he hacked, and he would say things like, "Your security is crap." <laughs> <laughs> he would just like leave a little notepad note somewhere on there for them to find, you know. Or another message he put was, "U.S. foreign policy is akin to government-sponsored terrorism these days." It was not a mistake that there was a huge security stand down on September 11th last year. I am solo. I will continue to disrupt at the highest levels. So, I mean, that message that they cite that one because it sort of suggests that maybe he did delete some system files and cause some trouble, but um, he claims that he never deleted anything. So, again, we'll talk about that maybe in a little bit. So on March 19th, 2002, police interviewed him and seized his and his girlfriend's and his aunt's computers from the house. They placed him on a sort of house arrest where he had to check in every night and he had to stay at home at night. He couldn't, you know, go off on vacation or something. But 
despite supposedly doing all this damage and hacking all these computers by some accounts, thousands of computers, kind of, he never really went to jail, which is kind of strange. The United States did attempt to extradite him and there was, you know, a years long legal battle, legal proceedings. But at some point, Theresa May blocked the extradition because she said that he suffered from Asperger's and depression. Now it's often his Asperger's is often cited and it people speculate that they're trying to shine the light on mental illness to kind of make him sound crazy and unreliable, but whether or not that factors into it and how much I'm not sure. Uh, as far as I'm aware, Asperger's is a form of autism and they're just like autism. There can be different severities of it from what I understand. I'm not an expert on this kind of stuff, but when you see him in interviews, he seems like um, kind of a weird dude, but a perfectly capable dude. He doesn't seem like somebody who's like severely impaired by, by his illness. Uh, so if he had been convicted under the United States rules, he would have faced up to 70 years in prison on hacking charges. If he was convicted under the U United Kingdom rules, it would have been more like six months. They were a lot less a lot less severe on their hacking rules at the time. That may have changed since then, because we're talking about, you know, 2001, 2002. So very well could have changed. So my my thoughts on why they let him go, there, there's a lot of different ways to look at it, but it could be mostly that at some point, the United States didn't want to present evidence in court. And it was sort of, the whole thing was just sort of an embarrassment. So they probably made a deal behind the scenes to be like, okay, just, just block the extradition and we'll just for, we don't want to deal with this anymore kind of a thing. But the UK and the US are pretty close allies. So it's, it's strange that they blocked the extradition for somebody who was committing, you know, some sort of espionage or something. It's it, just that aspect of the case. The fact that they were unable to extradite him and all that, like we could talk about that for a very long time. It's like a really interesting aspect of it, but we'll go ahead and do the short, short version of this because we're already getting a little over an hour here. So we'll skip over, you know, some of that legal proceedings stuff. Uh, but during the legal proceedings, a lot of people came out in support of Gary, such as David Gilmore of Pink Floyd, who recorded a version of Chicago by Graham Nash and the money from sales of the song went to support the legal defense. So he did have people. And then there was a, another guy who was like um, some kind of entrepreneur who just donated a hundred thousand pounds to his legal defense. And, you know, pounds are, they're a little more powerful than dollars. I don't know the exact exchange rate right now, but if I had to guess, I'd say 1.5 to two. So that means that would be, you know, let's say 150 to $200,000 probably. Um, Unless things have drastically changed the last time I've seen I that. Don't, the economy's so weird right now. Yeah, but that's my understanding. So anyways, people were definitely supporting him as well. So, I mean, that might be another factor uh, as, as to why they sort of let him go. So one thing that really surprised me about this case was how did he actually hack in to the government computers? So like you look at the list of computers he hacked into, it was like you know, like NASA and the, I think it was like the DOD and like there was multiple branches of the government that he got into and snooped around in, you know, like military, who knows who, probably the FBI. So you're like, okay, this guy must be some kind of hacking genius, right? Like 
he's probably one of these people from one of these movies who's got all these really fancy strategies and, you know, computers with like blinking lights and stuff. But it turns out all he did was he wrote a little script in Perl to find computers that had a blank admin password. That's it. <laughs> it's so crazy. Like, like I, I could, anybody could figure out how to do this if you wanted to. Like it's, we're not talking about like real high level stuff here, right? He just found computers where they had installed windows and they hadn't changed the default password, which apparently is user is name is admin password is blank. That's the default password. At least it was at the time. And he found these computers in government, uh, in government places and got into them. And he also used, he installed a commercial software that was basically like a remote desktop. So he was able to take control of the computers remotely. And he was just using off the shelf com- commercial software and God. a script, a little Perl script he wrote Dude. <laughs> to, find, you mess? to oh. find computers that were not protected by a password. It's his, this is to me, this is the part of the case that blows my mind the most. And it's also, also kind of terrifying because if some guy in, you know, in England or Scotland or whatever the case may be, if he can, he's like, he's not all that talented of a hacker. As far as I can tell, if he can just sort of stumble into these things, imagine what foreign powers who are well-funded and have entire departments of very talented people, trying to hack into this stuff. Imagine what they're able to do. So could you imagine the meeting, the, the, the crisis meeting over that? Yeah. <laughs> Whose terminal was that? And who, what was your password even yeah. uh, <laughs> about that? Was it, what was your password? Was it one, two, three, four, five? No, it was worse than that. Worse. <laughs> <laughs> the hell are you talking about? Worse? <laughs> <laughs> it's just so, it's so crazy that that's the mind boggle of the week right there. Right. Okay. I don't know. It reminds me of the kid who's, who was he tracking? Elon Musk's jet? Oh, yeah. Around, oh, right? yeah. Right, right. And he's like, can you please stop tracking my I will give you he money. He said he'd give him a Tesla. He said he'd give him a Tesla. He's like, stop just it. take stuff. Just leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is. Like, I'm not a huge fan of Elon Musk because basically he doesn't like to pay his taxes. But we'll not get into that. But, man, that does kind of suck to just post his whereabouts. You know, just leave the guy alone. You know, that that's not yeah. that's not cool. Don't do I that. I mean, for somebody of that figure, uh, that that can also be dangerous. You know, there's yeah. a lot of psychos that do stuff for a lot less. You know, so exactly, I agree with that. yeah, yeah. But um, yeah. So the way that you do that is, I I'm pretty sure that flights are publicly registered. So if you know his plane, if he has one plane that he flies around all the time, you could probably look up the registration number, and literally anybody could track that if they wanted to. So don't do that, people. <laughs> <laughs> it's rude. It's not cool. All right. That's so, a big no, no. So yeah, it's anyways, it's really surprising just how bad our security was at the time. Like really shockingly bad. Um, and in reality, he was, Gary McKinnon was doing them a favor by exposing just how bad the security really was. So they should be giving him, you know, a handshake and a medal. They should not be trying to prosecute him in reality. Like, well, maybe that's what happened behind the scenes. Look, if your computer doesn't even have a friggin' password and you're connected to the internet, that's on you. I don't care who you are. If whatever happens, if they steal all your money from your bank account or whatever, that's your fault for not having a password on your 
connected <laughs> computer. You know what I mean? Like at some point it's like if if you're going to leave a briefcase full of $10,000 just out on the sidewalk and just open the dang thing up, it's it's your fault for doing that. It's not that whoever comes by and steals it. Should you steal it? No. But at some point it's like, come on, you know, come on. So <laughs> um, he, while he was in these systems, he actually checked for other, you can do some kind of check to see who's connected to the computers or the, to the network. And he did that and he saw connections from all over the world that in his opinion were other hackers or other illicit accesses to this computer. So it appears he was not the only person hacking. I don't even know if hacking is the correct word here because he wasn't hacking anything. He was literally just finding unprotected computers. So I don't even know what you would call that. But anyways, he says that he was not the only person breaking into these systems. Now, he denies that he damaged any government systems and said that he wanted to keep a low profile. And it makes sense if you wanted to hack into this stuff, then you wouldn't want to cause damage and delete system files like they claim he did because then you're basically announcing your presence. He wasn't there to do damage. He was there to find information, which we'll talk about in a moment. But the law that the United States went after him with the the law says that it has to be at least 5,000 at the time. I'm not sure if it still says this, but it says there has to be at least 5,000 in damages. And if it's less than that, then it's sort of a, a different penalty, I guess. So they claim every computer that he hacked, he caused $5,000 in damage on those hacks. And you're like, Hmm, that's just a little bit too convenient, isn't it? So it looks like it, it kind of looks like that they're claiming he damned or claimed he damaged computers when he didn't really so that they could just kind of go after him and their claims of, you know, him shutting down the Atlantic fleet and all this other wild stuff. Like, I don't believe it. I think they were just saying that to sort of make charges. They could go after him and they never presented evidence of this. And one thing he did, uh, you know, in an interview is he admitted to everything and he said, look, you know, what I did was wrong, but, um, I want this to be, I want evidence presented against me and I want this to be go. I want this to go through the UK courts where we can have a fair trial. And of course that never happened. No evidence was ever presented against him, at least not in a public forum because of the sensitive nature of, of the, uh, of the case. According to the official story, he, he only hacked for like a year or so. But during interviews, he said that he hacked for years. He was getting into these systems. And in one interview I saw, he said he got into the systems between five and seven years. So for a really long time, he was hacking into these government systems. On one occasion, he was caught by like an IT security type guy who was, you know, the, the IT guy running that particular computer network. And he asked him what he was doing, what Gary was doing. He said that he was a military security specialist and the IT guy believed him <laughs> and uh, went on to flex about as the IT guy went on to flex his knowledge about viruses. And they had a conversation on a notepad on one of the computers. And Gary said that it was like a really weird experience. You know, like he got caught red handed in the system and he's like, uh, I'm a military security person. And it was like, oh, OK, cool. We'll check this out. Let me show you. My knowledge on viruses is kind of strange. <laughs> He's like, oh my God, it worked. That actually, I can't believe that actually worked. <laughs> so what was he hacking into these systems for? He said he was looking for 
evidence of free energy, UFOs, UFO technology, uh, you know, like reverse engineer technology and that sort of thing, and anti-gravity technology. He says that he found evidence of all of these things, but he isn't he wasn't specific for some of them. Uh, he said there were people out there who couldn't pay their energy bills, and meanwhile, the government had free energy technology that they were keeping to themselves. So that was what he claims his motivation was to get into these systems. But I think he also said during other interviews that there was also like an addictive quality to it. Like once he started getting into these systems, it became like a game. He had to learn what their security was and try to figure out how to get into the systems and all this stuff. So he did all these hacks with a 56K modem, by the way. And for all of, the, all of you who are unfamiliar with 56, that was the dial-up days. That was back in the days when if you were on the internet and somebody made a phone call to your, compu- to your household or you know somebody picked up the phone and tried to dial out, that might interrupt your internet connection. <laughs> so we're talking about real old school. Uh, one of the interesting things, probably the most talked about thing that he found was a UFO photo. Now, he says that he got the idea to look for this because there was an ex-NASA employee named Donna Hare who claimed during the Disclosure Project that in Hangar 8 and NASA's Johnson Space Center, they had people who would doctor photographs from satellites. They would basically airbrush out UFOs from the photos. So one, this is one of the things that he heard, that Gary McKinnon heard. So he went looking for it. And he found on a computer in at NASA, NASA's Johnson Space Center, he found photos of UFOs or, you know, from satellite photos. And there were, fo- there were folders named um, like processed and unprocessed or something like that. And he downloaded one of the unprocessed photos but like I said, it was like a 56K modem and he was trying to view it through his remote desktop type stuff. And it was, it was taking a long time to download and it only got about three fourths of the way through downloading the image before somebody noticed and cut his internet connection off. So a lot of the, a lot of the time this event is, is sort of portrayed like, okay, why didn't he just take a screenshot And that's sort of used to say that, okay, he must be making this up because if he was really had this picture, he would have just taken a screenshot because that would have been easy to do. There's a button on most, if not all computers that says print screen. And if you were an IT guy like Gary McKinnon was, you would know what that button does and you would know how to use it. And it worked exactly the same back then as it does now. But the thing is this, if you go to like the Wikipedia version then they'll make a good case. It's like, yeah, that doesn't make sense. Why didn't he hit print screen? But if you look at his interviews and what he actually says was going on, he says that there was folders for full of photos and he was doing this at nighttime, you know, not nighttime where he was, but nighttime in the middle of the night for, for the NASA location. And he was like looking, he wanted to look through more photos and the photo hadn't even downloaded all the way. So if you consider that part of the story, then it makes a lot of sense why he hadn't saved the photograph yet or taken a screenshot yet because he wasn't done even downloading the first photo. He's trying to get multiple photos. And at 56K for a high-res photo, this was a high-res photo that was supposedly about 250 megabytes. It would have taken something like an hour to download just one photo. So this was taking a long time. He might not have even been sitting in front of his computer the whole time. He might have been, 
you know, up and down doing other stuff. But anyways, he says that the photo showed from a satellite over the Northern Hemisphere, a cigar-shaped, smooth, metallic craft with geodesic or half domes on top, bottom, and the sides. It didn't have any rivets or anything, and he said it did not look man-made. But during an interview, he said he didn't know what it was. He said it maybe it's alien, maybe it's some sort of secret tech or something. Nobody knows. He didn't have very much chance to examine the photo before his connection was severed. And he, you know, and unfortunately he didn't get any copies of it or anything. But even if he had been able to copy the photo, his computers were confiscated anyways. So it's not like we would have been able to get a, a you know, a publicly available version of the photo either way, unfortunately. But that was, so that was probably the biggest, you know, the biggest thing that's usually talked about. But he also says that he found a spreadsheet titled non-terrestrial officers with a list of air force personnel. And he also found a list of ship names. And when he Googled the ship names, none of them came up on Google. And he thinks that they were spaceships, not, you know, ocean going ships. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Which is, which is really interesting. Right. Yeah. But I mean, who knows about the ships, but I mean, non-terrestrial officers, that's pretty interesting too. Right. So um, I have just a, a random quote here that I put in my notes here. He says about his hacks, what I did was illegal and wrong, and I accept that. I should be punished, but I am not a member of Al-Qaeda. I believe my case is being treated so seriously because they're scared of what I've seen. I'm living in a surreal Nutter's film. And that's sort of an interesting point because, because the government at one point did try to go and get him and put him in jail, the U.S. government, that sort of puts that gives him credibility that he really did hack into these systems, but it, it actually opens up a lot of other questions too. Like, okay, he hacked into the systems, but are his claims credible? Did he find evidence of, you know, of free energy or did he really see this UFO photo? If you watch his interviews, he does seem believable. He does not seem like he's lying, but on the other hand, people who are really good at lying are very hard. You can't just tell they're lying by watching them in an interview. So that's not really a good way of evaluating it. But if you also look at like just how easy it was to hack into these systems, it, so, some's not making sense here. You know, like why would they go after him and then just let him go? You know, like why would Theresa May block the extradition? Why would it be so easy to hack into government systems with all this top secret stuff? that should be hidden very deeply and compartmentalized. It should be very difficult to find this stuff, but he was able to find it without too much trouble, apparently just by finding, you know, blank passwords, basically. Um, it, the, the story, it just, there, there are things that just to me don't really make any sense when you start looking into it. Right. But one of the main ideas is that this whole thing was a, what they call a honeypot operation. So they would put fake information somewhere on computers and let people try to hack into the computers, basically in order to catch people who are trying to hack in, or maybe not even the point wasn't even to catch hackers, but to put false information on those computers so that if foreign powers got into those systems and got that fake information, it would be sort of like um, like a misdirection or something. So they're getting fake info 
that misdirects them from like real information, you know? And I think there's a lot of, lot of, lot of, I don't know how, like, that seems very credible to me because it seems hard to believe that it would be so poorly that the, the uh, security would just be so poorly designed. It makes a lot of sense that it would be on purpose. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, so I kind of believe that that was either a honeypot operation or, uh, some way to misdirecting foreign powers or something like that. Like that makes a lot more sense to me. It does. Yeah. And that would make sense too, because that would mean that he really did see the things that he claimed to see, but what he saw, they were fakes. They were fake documents, fake pictures and all that stuff meant to mislead foreign powers. So he's being genuine. If this is the case, he's not lying about his experience, but what he saw was not real stuff. It was fake stuff. So I think that that version of the story makes an awful lot of sense to me, but um, we don't know for sure. That's just one idea. We have no way of proving that and we will never have any way of proving that they're never going to, you know, the government's never going to come out and admit to something like that because that would be like, you know, their procedures and stuff and they're never going to give away their procedures. Uh, In one interview, it was really interesting, but Gary suggested he had more stuff that he could release if he was prosecuted, sort of like threatening the U.S. government. And I was like, is this why they backed off? Does he really have more like secret files that he squirreled away somewhere and they're afraid of him releasing? Was it just a bluff? Because it sounds like it was kind of just a bluff and he doesn't have any real stuff because they confiscated his computers and he didn't ever say that he you know, claimed to make any backups or anything. It doesn't seem like he did make backups of any of his stuff, although he did say that he did record or download some of the documents. So I'm not sure I really buy into that. I think he was just sort of saying that as a bluff, unfortunately. Um, Now, another idea is that that I had was that um, McKinnon was actually in some way working for the government and the whole thing was just some sort of ruse. And this would sort of go, you know, go along with the early idea of it being some sort of honeypot or misdirection, but maybe the whole thing, they, maybe they found him sort of poking around their systems and they're like, all right, we're going to make up this story and we'll pay you a few bucks if you go along with it kind of a thing, you know, cause he would, he was arrested, so he might have spent, you know, a night or two in jail, but he never really went to jail, you know, and that would also explain why they were able at some point, they just dropped the charges, you know, but I was going to say, yeah, yeah, okay. I don't know that that was just sort of an idea that occurred to me, but it, it may or may not make sense, you know, when you look at the whole case. Um, but yeah, so I don't know, like, why would the government even connect computers like this to open Internet networks you know like uh, th- this is just a really weird case and it it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense when you just stop to think about it but yeah so that is the gary mckinnon case in a nutshell there's an awful lot more to dig into there if anybody wants to look into more of it themselves it's a really interesting case and we could have actually done a whole case file on it if we wanted to but um that's the short version for our power hour all right and that's about all i had for this week before we finish up I just had one more business of, you know, topic of business. I did have a mind boggle for this week, but we're going a little long here. So I think I'm going to go save that one for next week. But before we, before we uh, get out of here, I always do, you know, an Amazon affiliate link. And this week we're doing uh, because of, you know, because agent Kruger mentioned it earlier, 
I'll put a link to the chariots of the gods by, um, by what was that guy's name again? Oh, it's such an easy name. Let me remember it. Sorry. I should, I saw, I, I should really know this name. This is a pretty, pretty prominent book. Let me look it up here real quick. Oh, Eric Von Daniken. That's, I can't believe I forgot there his name. Yeah, All yeah. right. <laughs> so this week we have chariots of the gods by Eric Von Daniken. This is a real classic. This is one, if not the book that started the whole modern, you know, ancient alien craze. I actually haven't read it myself, but it's on my list of things to do. It's supposed to be a really good book. And I want to check it out. I don't know. I can't say for certain if I believe anything in there because, like I said, I haven't read it. But anyways, links in the description. It's an affiliate link. Your purchase helps to support the show and doesn't cost you anything extra. Keep it strange. <laughs> 